This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. This week on the show, a man who has trained thousands of brewers since launching the UC Davis Brewing Science Program in 1962. You'll hear about his journey, his love affair with stout, why you're using the wrong beer glass, and more. Hello, my name is Michael Lewis. Dr. Lewis, I know you trained in brewing science in the UK, but I don't know much about your early years in brewing. Where did you get started, and how did you first become interested in brewing? interested in brewing, uh, you know, as a young man, um, young men should look around and see what's around them and what they want to become uh, when they see models in their life. And I happened to see a TV program uh, where a man was doing something rather dramatic uh, for a TV show. And they interviewed him afterwards and said, and what do you do in real life? And he said, I'm a master brewer. Huh. And as soon as I heard those words, I thought, that's it. That's what I want to be. Up until then, I'd been a food analyst or a, f- a food chemist or um, something, or a medical doctor, something like that. But as soon as I heard the word master brewer, I thought, that's it. And then, of course, I lived in the city of Birmingham. Uh, the University of Birmingham was my local university. Uh, there was a very large scholarship available there for poor students, and I was one of those. Uh, and um, uh, that was also where the British School of Malting and Brewing was located. So I signed on to the Applied Biochemistry Department uh, and uh, went through to the PhD degree uh, in parallel with students who were studying brewing science. And so I came out of the other end of five years of training with a good deal of knowledge of um, biochemistry uh, applied to technology, linked to engineering, uh, particularly to brewing science. And so when I came to the States, I was looking for a position that would allow me to use those skills. 
it so happened in Davis, in Davis, California, there was a professor by the name of uh, Herman Pfaff. And Herman Pfaff was a, an expert in yeasts. And I had done my research in yeast for my PhD degree. And so I wrote to him in 1960 and said, Herman, can I come and work with you in your lab as a postdoc? He said, you're absolutely welcome, of course, but I don't have any money for a salary. And so that, of course, was not very good for me. So I actually wound up in Buffalo, New York, uh, working uh, in something that was quite miserable. Uh, and at the end of that time, I was on my way back to England, having finished my postdoctoral experience. And I wrote to Herman again, and I said, um, Herman, do you have any money now? And he said, thank God you've written. I've just received a grant from the Master Brewers Association to do research on brewing yeast. And you're an ideally suited person to do that work with me. And so he said, please come to Davis as soon as you can. So I came to Davis uh, on that off chance. It was an extraordinary series of events that brought me to Davis, but that was how it worked out. Then within a couple of years, they asked me to um, join the faculty and um, asked me what my title would like, to, what title I would like. And I said, I'd like the title of Brewing Science, and I'd like to start an educational program, a teaching program uh, in Brewing Science. And the Academic Senate approved, and that was by now perhaps 1963 or 64. And so that was the genesis of the Brewing Science Program at UC Davis, which is now seeking its, which is now seeking its third professor of Brewing Science. Yeah. I mean, timing is everything, huh? Timing is everything, and good luck is absolutely essential. <laughs> yeah, I, I read, it sounds like it may not be correct, but I had read somewhere along the lines that, you know, when you accepted the job at Davis, uh, I think in like 62, um, that that you hadn't realized that Davis even really had a brewing program. It sounds like it didn't really have a full-fledged program, but maybe they had had some courses in brewing. Is that about right? or? Uh, no, there were, there were no courses in brewing science at the time. There was wine courses, and thank ah. God for that. Because uh, the wine program was, of course, alcohol on campus. And so when I came along and said, we want to do alcohol on campus in the form of beer, that was not a problem. We already had a wine program. And so the wine program gave me lots of cover to do that. But there was a research effort funded by Master Brewers uh, at UC Davis through Herman Pfaff and a couple of other professors. So there, there was an established presence of brewing at Davis, but not an educational one, simply a, a research one. The Master Brewers Association uh, funded that research, put in a research pilot brewery in the late in the late fifties, I think. Yes, the late fifties, and that came to Davis under peculiar circumstances. They would have preferred to put the program at the University of Wisconsin. And in fact, they tried to do that. Um, but you know, that was the Bible Belt, and uh, that was alcohol on campus, and it didn't work out too well. So happened that the president of the Master Brewers at that time was one Ruben Schneider, and Ruben Schneider was the president and CEO of Lucky Lager Brewing in San Francisco. <laughs> and he said, I know a place where they'll accept brewing money, UC Davis. And he wow. made that connection with campus. And that, that was, that's what brought brewing money and the brewing presence to Davis. When I arrived, I put in the, the teaching program um, uh, through the food science department. That's great. And, and that teaching program is what's really um, 
expanded over the years and has fully engaged me since the early 60s through actually last year when I finally retired from a serious teaching. Now, I understand, uh, it, even though you, you make it sound easy, but it sounds like, uh, from what I've read, it did take some convincing uh, for the ac- academic senate to uh, approve that you know brewing would have a place in an academic curriculum. Well, it was... Um it was not uh, an easy sell, it's true, but uh, when you say you've got wine, you know, that gives you a, a, a key to open the lock. And you say you're doing wine, why can't you do beer? Beer is an important part of the structure of the state of California. There are lots of breweries and beer drinkers in the state of California. Why can't we serve that need as well? And so, uh, as I say, the wine department did provide a good deal of cover in the early days, and and they and the professors in the wine department were supportive. They, they understood that um, there was a real technology and a real science associated with uh, beer. And at the end of the day, I was in a food science department, so and beer is food, and so it, it all hung together quite well. And any arguments that might have been put up uh, were fairly easy to counter. It was not a free. It was not a free sale. That's for sure. It's been said that you built UC Davis's brewing science curriculum from a mere idea to a thriving program with worldwide reputation for excellence. What were the early days of the program like? Oh my goodness! I love that quote. <laughs> really, very. <good. laughs> Uh, and I suppose there's some tr- truth to that in the sense that I was the brewing program for many, many years. And uh, if, if it was brewing, it was me. And so, so whatever happened, I was responsible for the good part and the bad part. Um, but in the early days, there was a certain amount of, um, of uh, academic snobbery involved that um, brewing science would be looked down upon. Indeed, all kinds of technological science was looked down upon. But once again, we were in a wine, we had the wine department there. We were in the College of Agriculture. We had a function that reached out to real things that were happening in our state. And so we could always make the case, yes, we're not doing pure academic research of the highest biochemical, physical quality, but we are doing research and teaching that applies to the real state of California and the real issues that are going on and the real practices within our state. And so the wine program, again, was the exemplar of that, where they were training people for the wine industry. The wine industry was famous in California. Beer is just following along. Food science is just following along in that same track. And so it, uh, it, it finally sold. Early on, UC Davis was a propagator for Anheuser-Busch brewers, but over the years, craft grew and industrial beer got smaller. Did the curriculum need to evolve to meet the needs of craft brewers, or is size irrelevant when training brewers? The training of brewers is the same whether you're training a home brewer or whether you're training a brewer for Anheuser-Busch. So the technology is exactly the same, and the objectives are exactly the same. And so there's a there's a um, a kinship among all people who engage in brewing. And whether you are a senior executive at Anheuser Busch, and many of my students certainly in the early days became that, or, or whether you are a home brewer um, working in the kitchen with simpler equipment. 
there's a similar devotion to what's happening, there's a similar interest in what's happening, there's a similar objective, and there's a similar outcome that you seek. And so all of that is part of the technology, part of the science, part of the philosophy of brewing, and that is all uh, right on track for training any brewer in any circumstance. There is a difference, however, um, in the personality involved. Uh, if you're going to go to work for a major corporation, uh, especially on Oz Bush, um, you need to have um, more of a corporate view of the world, more of a, a comfort with, with being in charge of people who are actually doing the hands-on work, that you have to have the understanding, you have to have the foresight, you have to have the wisdom uh, to operate the scheme, to operate the brewery, and the management skills have to come along in order to enable you to run a, a big multi-billion dollar corporation. Um, and certainly a single brewery is multi-million dollars. Uh, and so you look for perhaps different people. Uh, whereas if you are going to be in the craft brewing industry, it's a much more personal industry. It's still dominated by individuals who are personalities, who are the serious owner, not merely the CEO, but the owner of brewing corporations. And the, the individual commitment to the individual process, the individual um, brewery, becomes more of a personality a personality thing that you seek uh, in those who are going to go into the craft industry. The technology, the science, uh, the knowledge, uh, the perspective that they must have is the same in all cases. I don't know if you coined the phrase, but you've certainly had some things to say about extreme beers, which is a term we don't hear so much anymore 15 years later. Talk about drinkability, the role extreme beer has played in the growth of craft beer, and where you think things are headed. Yes, I have in times gone by talked about extreme beers because I saw the craft industry, uh, in my view, uh, going in a, a um, an unthoughtful and perhaps unhelpful direction. Um, when the craft industry first came up, I was immensely enthusiastic because, of course, I came from a British background. I traveled very widely in the world, and I knew that there were beers to be made that were other than um, the main commercial beers that we understood in those days. And so I was very enthusiastic to support the industry. Um, and I was also very enthusiastic that it went in the direction of ales because ales are different from the lagers that the big brewers make. They're easy to make, they're relatively cheap to make, uh, and they can be very tasty indeed. Uh, so I was enthusiastic about that. But then, and when I first was talking to the craft industry, when it first began, the very first meetings, um, I would say I can see this industry being at least 20% of the entire production of the, of the um, brewing America uh, in 10 years. Uh, but uh, the craft industry suddenly began thinking that the way to the, to the beer drinker's heart was to make beers that were unusual. Uh, and so we started to get very alcoholic beers, very bitter beers, very black beers, sour beers, all sorts of special beers with special yeasts which have weird flavors. Uh, and so we began to see this great panoply of beers that were not appealing to the to the um, 
ordinary drinker who looks, who's looking for a nice glass of beer just to enjoy with his meal. He doesn't want to sit down and savor the brewer's art every second that he's drinking a beer, you know. Uh, it's, it's, a beer is something to be enjoyed almost casually. And the brewers making extreme beers were making beers that were not casual beers. They were attention-grabbing, attention-demanding beers. I called them extreme beers. And I see the, the, the word drinkability coming back now. I see talk about lagers coming back into favor. Uh, see about pale ales, lighter ales coming back into favor. Certain brands that I, I don't want to mention, but you will know them, uh, have been extraordinarily successful simply by asking the question, what do people want to drink? To enjoy the drink. They want something that's drinkable that they can have two or three of. And those brands have been immensely successful. Um, and that's what I saw was the great opportunity of the craft industry that initially was not followed. I think it's being followed much more now. And we are getting to my predicted 20% or whatever it is uh, of the entire, of the entire um, product of, of American brewing. And, 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 and there's a thing in the craft industry which, um, which I understand, but which I'm not sure I'm pleased about, and that is the idea that I am the brewer and I am the arbiter of what my customers should drink. And so what I like, I will make, and we'll see who will buy it and drink it. Um, and then you're in competition with all these other brewers who are doing weird and interesting stuff. And so you want to do weird and interesting stuff and put mint in the beer and, and cannabis in the beer and all those sorts of things to grab attention. Instead of asking the question, what, do my, what does my customer want? What, how can I meet his or her needs? Of course, the big industry was very good at that. They never, ever put a beer on the market without being damn sure that there was a significant cohort who would drink it and buy it. Uh, the craft brewing industry turned that completely on its head and said, I will make it and they will come. I think the old saying is, brew for the king, live like the masses, brew for the masses, live like the king, right? Right, exactly, yeah. Dr. Lewis, you authored a book about stout in the mid-90s as part of the BA's classic beer style series. T tell, us about yeah. your, tell us about your love affair with stout. Well, um, it goes back a long way. Um, my dad was a, um, not a beer drinker. Uh, he was a church-going Christian lay reader. He preached every Sunday in church, and so he did not have a particularly favorable view of beer drinking and pubs. Thank God, all of his brothers loved pubs, loved drinking, owned pubs, and taught me a lot about beer. But my father's idea was that I should not be a drinker. He took me into a pub one day, much to my surprise, when I was a young, very young man, maybe 16, and he said, let's have a beer. Uh, he got a light ale for himself, and he got me a Guinness Stout. And the Guinness Stout, I think, was probably uh, the worst tasting beer that he could possibly imagine giving to a small boy or a young boy, a young man, uh, with the objective of turning me off beer for the rest of my life. Didn't work. I loved the stuff. <laughs> it was just spectacularly interesting and a beautiful appearance, and it was just gorgeous in every way. And I've been a Guinness drinker ever since. If there's Guinness, if there's Guinness in a pub, I'll, I'll buy a pint of it at least just to touch my touched by my brewing base. 
I was in Iceland just recently in Reykjavik in a little pub in, in, a, in Reykjavik, and they had a whole plethora of beers on tap. And um, I thought, God, I can't even figure what all these beers are, but they had Guinness. And so that's what I had. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm right there with always, you. <laughs> it's, always it's always one of my go-to beers. Same here. <laughs> it's a fantastic beer. Um, in fact, I've been with a, a group of, of brewers who you probably know most of um, out in um, uh, for the uh, American Hop Convention. And um, same thing. We found ourselves in a pub and you know just wanted a beer that we, we knew we could count on. And, and Guinness it was. And we had many of them. Our mutual friend Vinny, who suggested that we have this conversation, took one of your week-long intensive brewing courses uh, in the late 80s. You said something that really stuck with him, which was, you don't know you have a sanitation problem until you have a sanitation problem. Talk about that. (laughs) Yes. Um, One of the places where I really started talking to brewers in a practical sense was incidentally in home brewing classes. And the week-long class could not have been a homebrew class, but the first thing I began with uh, with my homebrew classes, which would have been in the early 70s, uh, well before homebrewing was legal in the country, uh, I was giving homebrewing classes. And um, what I saw among the beers that I was drinking that homebrewers were making was a lack of sanitation. And when I watched them make their beer, I thought, oh my God, they just have no sense of a sanitary process. And so they were using plastic buckets, and, uh, and so I introduced the use of the uh, the, um, the water bottle, you know, the big water bottle, the, um, and to have a closed, most, mostly closed top. Uh, the idea of sanitation, of cleaning things, of getting rid of wooden spoons, and not using your hand to stir the wort, and uh, all kinds of uh, really quite disgusting practices. Uh, and I went to a number of. Um, um, Conventions uh, dealing with homebrew and craft brewing uh, that accentuated sanitation because that is one of the fundamental bases of successful brewing. If you don't have an absolutely spanking clean brewery when spanking clean equipment, uh, then you cannot successfully make beer long term. You will get a sad contamination uh, of beer and it will spoil. And, so, and especially if you don't have a pasteurization system, uh, it's key for craft brewers to, to have uh, splendid sanitation. Uh, and that's a fundamental. Coming up. There were two thoughts. One thought was, who are these jumped-up craft brewers who think they're commercial brewers? How do we keep them out of the master brewers? And then the other group, of which I was a part, was, these are brewers making commercial beer. How do we help them to make good beer? I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by 
ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Bring the world to your brew house with BSG's diverse selection of ingredients and services. Our dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Make BSG your supplier of choice with products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. Visit us at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. And thanks also to... Malt Europe Malting Company is a leading supplier of craft malt across North America. As a farmer-owned company, Malt Europe has carefully crafted quality malt from locally grown barley for decades. The result? A portfolio of base, specialty, and distiller's malts that exceed the exacting standards of craft brewers. Learn more and buy online at malteuropemaltingco.com. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets at Wisconsin Brewing Company September 19th. The District Ontario Iron Brewer is at Common Good Beer Co. September 27th. District Western New York meets at FX Matt in Utica October 3rd. District New England meets at Northwoods Brewing October 11th. District Philly goes to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair October 12th. New Hampshire Brewfest 2019 is October 12th in Portsmouth. District St. Louis meets October 17th. And the brand new District Georgia is holding its first annual pig roast October 19th at Monday Night Brewing in Atlanta. District Mid-Atlantic meets October 19th at Union Craft Brewing in Baltimore. Registration is now open for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference in Calgary. Be sure to tack on a couple of extra days to enjoy some amazing hiking and make the 45-minute trip to Banff, which is one of the most picturesque places on the planet. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. In 2012, you came to Frederick, Maryland and gave a presentation to District Mid-Atlantic called the Majestic Pint. I was the tech uh, tech chair at the time, so you made me look great. Thanks for that, by the way. Uh, do you really uh, do? You, do you think the industry is finally catching on? And what's the outcome if we really get this right? Well, um, the industry is catching on slowly here and there. Um, I mean, uh, it's made, the the people who are doing the beer service right, I think, for the time being at least, uh, are the um, Stella Artois people. Uh, they have made a thing about making their chalice glass available in almost all of the pubs where I buy Stella Artois. Oh, Guinness. <laughs> and um, they have made that effort because, to me, the glass is a part of the pint. It's one of the fundamental things that sets you up for the, the visual pleasure that comes before the actual sensory pleasure of drinking the beer. And so you have this 
site of the beer in a beautifully shaped glass with a logo on there uh, with a beautiful level of foam. And the beer is clear and sparkling and uh, the, the carbonation is working and bubbles are rising and it just looks like such a fantastic meal. Such a, such a pleasure. How can humankind create something that looks as gorgeous as that? And so there's a huge visual pleasure to see a, a perfectly served pint uh, before you even touch it uh, or drink it. And that, to me, is an essential part of the majestic pint, that the beer glass is designed for the beer, to enhance the beer, that it looks lovely, uh, and that uh, when it comes over the bar, you are delighted to receive it from the barman. Um, and that's the majestic pint. Beer clean glass, excellent beer, um, foam stability, you know, the way you know the whole thing of, of what a wonderful pint of beer looks like. And the tulip-shaped glass, or the chalice-shaped glass, to me is a key to the right glass to use for service of the beer. You put the logo on there of your company, it's a wonderful sales point. Um, now, I understand why the disgusting straight-sided pint glass is used in so many pubs. Mind you, it's used for so many things like Coca-Cola and water and milk and whatever else is going on. It's also used for beer service, but it's a very convenient, tough, cheap, safe glass. And I understand why it's used, but I wish brewers would understand that there is no pride in that glass. There is no honor in that glass. There is no grace in that glass. It's just a goddamn bucket to put beer in to give to your customers without even respecting, I think, the product or the, or the customer. So to me, proper glasses, well taken care of, and beautiful service is an essential part of the end game for the brewer. And any brewer who can't do that is missing out on lots of opportunities to impress his drinking public. Do you think, have you seen improvements since you first uh, gave these uh, Majestic Pint lectures, uh, which I guess was roughly seven or so years ago, in your travels? Have you, have you noticed that it's, we're making some headway or no? Uh, here and there, yes, you see it here and there. But um, I think that many of the pubs that have their own tap rooms are using uh, better glasses, but they're tending to use a straight-sided pint, but putting their logo on the side, it's still a goddamn straight-sided pint, right? So uh, it's not enhancing the beer in any way. Um, and so there is some headway, but there's a real resistance to doing it. And part of the reason is um, that there's a great fear that the glass will be stolen. I don't doubt that they will be, so it'll be a cost. Um, but there are ways of handling that, I think. And is that really such a bad thing that, you know, they're going to be doing free advertising well, for that, you? <laughs> that's my argument, exactly. Is, is that it's such a bad thing that a, that a customer will take home your glass and use it at home advertising your beer? Uh, but, and the short answer to that for most pros is yes. So I get quite a little pushback on the rank inconvenience, uh, cost, and the law. Uh, the law does not allow you to give things of value to retail outlets. And so um, I've had some discussions with various people about making the case that the glass is part of the pint. And if a pub is serving your beer, you should be allowed to provide them with 
the other part of the pint that's missing, that is the glasses. Yeah. And then yeah. that becomes a charge to the brewery. But there are legal bounds also, which we have to think about. Um, those boundaries are in place for very good reasons. Um, but we may want to seek some kind of uh, amelioration of those particular regulations so that we can give magnificent service and a majestic pint to our customers. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the fairly recent rise of craft malting. Is craft malt the antidote for extreme beer and the hop arms race? Craft malting is, a, is an interesting venture, and uh, I, I wish the people engaging in it uh, good fortune, um, and I hope it works out well for them. But some of the craft maltings that I've seen are really quite tiny, and all that I've heard about. Um, are really quite tiny, and I wonder how they can make a profit without charging a very great deal of money. Also, being that small, I wonder how consistent they can be uh, in their process. So I'm asking questions to which I don't know the answer. Um, the craft, you know, making of malt is a great skill. It's done on a huge scale. I don't think there's any shortage of quality malt in the in the firmament of brewing. Um, it is true, perhaps, that much of the malt that is made is primarily made still for the big brewers, uh, and that the craft malting may be able to create something special and even unique that, the, um, that will bring a certain uh, quality to craft beers that is currently missing. Uh, I hope that is so, because to my mind, that is really necessary in order for the craft malting industry uh, to be a, um, a success. Um, and, and maybe that will allow brewers to start talking more about the malt that they're using, rather than about the, the, all the focus on the great plethora of, of hops that they uh, use in, in very strange and odd and ways in some cases. So um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of maltsters and malting, and um, I think what they achieve is quite magic. What it does for beer is quite magic. The mashing process itself is quite magic. Uh, and I've always said that hops is the salt on the potato. <laughs> but the potato is still the potato. Dr. Lewis, I have some memories of you really laying into brewers in the early 2000s during your frequent CBC presentations. At one point, I think you said something to the effect of only one out of four craft beers were any good. And I remember thinking even that might have been generous. Uh, what's your take on the current state of the industry? Are we still one out of four, but with exponentially more beers? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? What do you think? Well, um, that, was, I, that was a talk I gave um, following an experience at Christmas time. I think I bought a, one of those mixed cases, you know? Yep. Uh, and, um, w and my family was here, and so we got to open this case, the 12 pack, uh, all different beers. And um, I think one in four was drinkable. And all the others uh, had something wrong with them. They were hazy, or they uh, they gushed, or they were sour, or something was wrong with them. And, I, and it made me so angry um, that that we are 
that the craft brewers are wasting the goodwill that comes from a person who would buy uh, maybe a 12-pack of, of mixed beers. Um, you know, the, the customer trusts you, and you must be trustworthy to deliver a product worthy of his money and of his attention. Um, and so uh, I think that the, that the marketplace has the ultimate uh, ability to do that. People do not buy twice a beer that they do not like. If you have a brew pub and you make beer that people do not like, they will not come again. And so I think that there is a winnowing process. And so every year that I go to the craft industry, I hear the statistics, you know, this many brew pubs or public or breweries have opened and this many have closed. And so you ask yourself the first question, why did they close? Probably part of the reason was that it didn't make very good beer. And so we should not be sorry that they close. We should be happy. And I think that as long as we have a significant level of closures based on the public rejecting those beers, then the craft industry will always be healthy. And so it's a... Um, uh, so the struggle is always to make a worthy beer or a credible beer, a beer that people will buy and enjoy. And... Um, that they're prepared for, that they're willing to invest in, and that they will come back again and drink again. I always used to say, you know, the six-pack of beer, all the profit is in the sixth bottle. You know, the other five are just, they're just paying the bills, and in the sixth bottle, that's where the profit is. And we have to produce a beer that gets our customers to the sixth bottle so that he can go out and buy another damn six-pack of the same product. And that's loyalty, and that's what uh, good beers demand because they deserve it. So when I go into a pub, I ask for a number of beers that, I, that are craft brewers that are made around this state, and I ask for them because I know that they're good, I know that they're consistently good, and I know that I will enjoy them. And if they don't have them, I'm kind of a sea for a little while because I don't know. Maybe I'll go to Guinness in that case. <laughs> but, the, um, but if the, um, if, if those particular brands are available, I will always buy them because I know I can trust them. So are we, you think we're still one out of four if you were to go get a mixed pack uh, next Christmas? Or do you think no, we're better I, than I, that? I think, we're better than that. Uh, I think we're better than that. Uh, I, I don't... I, I don't drink that widely to be able to make that judgment anymore. I tend to go with beers that I trust. And um, so I'm, I'm not really qualified to answer that question, but I doubt very much that we are three bad ones to one good one. I doubt very much. You know, the, the knowledge in the craft industry, the, the, um, the exchange of information, the leadership of the good brewers uh, is, is so pervasive uh, that... There are not as many ignorant brewers as there used to be, um, and then they know how to copy other beers. They know what they're trying to achieve because they see what they're aiming at in the marketplace. And so I think that the leadership and the guidance that exists in the industry is much better now than it, than it was formerly. Previously, it was kind of a wild west shootout. I think now there's much more rationality in the industry. That's my general feeling. Whether I have any evidence to back that idea up, I'm not so sure. Except I do see drinkable, excellent beers 
marked in the marketplace, and that I think is the signal that the overall quality continues to rise. I, I think, and I think the I think Master Brewers and you know some of the other um, uh, organizations that help educate brewers have really stepped up, you know, to to to. Uh, oh, the Master Brewers has been fantastic. Um, uh, uh, I, I attended one of your seminars in uh, Chico. Um, I think a year or so passed, and uh, it was about beer quality and all sorts of things. It was just a splendid show. It was really well done. And I think, you know, going back to the early days of Master Brewers, when I was on the Board of Governors way back in the, I don't know how long ago it was, but the um, the, uh, the commitment of Master Brewers to education and to spreading the word uh, has been, uh, I think, phenomenal. And we've continued, continued along that line. And... Um, I remember in Board of Governors meetings way back when, um, there were two thoughts. One thought was, who are these jumped-up craft brewers who think they're commercial brewers? How do we keep them out of the master brewers? And then the other group, of which I was a part, was, these are brewers making commercial beer. How do we help them to make good beer? I mean, that was very much a theme of a meeting, was how do we help them to make good beer? Uh, and... Um, um, I, I think that there's a, a good deal of sharing of information that went on um, and still does go on between uh, commercial brewers, um, large brewers, experienced brewers, the bigger craft industry, and sharing information and sharing ideas and thoughts and objectives with um, smaller operations, perhaps startup operations. If they only will reach out, brewers who know much more and have been there will help. I think that's a key activity of the master brewers, for which I think they deserve a great deal of credit. Your contributions have inspired countless brewers and done a lot of good for American beer. I'm sure you realize that. I guess I just want to say thank you on behalf of the thousands of brewers out there who feel the same way. Thank you for your frequent entertaining nudges, your countless publications, your mastery of the English language, your wit, and most of all for making a brewer's work even more fun than it's already supposed to be. So thank you. Thank you for your kind words. For me personally, being a part of the industry for all these years has been a great pleasure. And um, I've met a lot of uh, really fascinating people, been to a lot of fascinating places. Uh, and so the industry, and, and I still see that great enthusiasm and passion and professionalism um, and, and commitment in brewers because they're beer makers. And they're part of that international community of people who make beer. And it is a community, it is a movement, it is a, uh, an industry. Uh, and it's something that we all should be immensely proud of to be a part of. And um, that, that's a message I want to send to, uh, to all brewers. We, we have a responsibility um, to our own brewery and to the profession um, to be professional, to be um, critical, to be helpful, to be sharing, um, and to be a part of a larger community that understands that we all stand and fall by the other person. Uh, we, um, what is uh, John Donne's uh, thing? Uh, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, because we are part of the main. Each man depends upon the other man. That's absolutely what brewers are. We all depend upon each other for the success of our industry and for our profession. So that's, a, that's something that 
we need to bring every day to our jobs and to our professional meetings. I think Master Brewers really got it right with their latest slogan, which is United We Brew. Yes, I think that's lovely. That was Dr. Michael Lewis here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check out the show notes for a few quick reads authored by Dr. Lewis. We're taking this show on the road. I'll be talking yeast with Graham Stewart, dry hopping with Tom Shellhammer, kvike yeast with Richard Priest, oxygen ingress on small canning lines with Brooke Bell, diastaticus detection with Matt Linsky, and so much more. Master Brewers Live is a brand new addition to the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. So grab your passport, get registered at mbaa.com, and join us in the Master Brewers Live studio October 31st and November 1st in Calgary. Check out the brand new Master Brewers Podcast website. You'll find guest profiles, information about upcoming live events, and more, all at masterbrewerspodcast.com. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, and Malt Europe. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Get, 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 get,